What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. This is our weekend episode, so we do a little bit of culture um, in the coming episodes, and we're, we're looking at literature through the ages. So this episode will have the Odyssey on, so we'll be looking at part of the Homer's Odyssey, so please hang it, hang in there with us to for the middle section. But before that, we'll look at news, and we have Claudine Gay, Dr. Dr. Gay, who has um, who hasn't been removed as president from Harvard, and the Harvard community seems to be doubling down on her. So that is. Um, very interesting. So stay with us, and we'll be right back to talk a little bit about Dr. Gate. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back, and I want to remind everybody Victor can be found at his website, VictorHanson.com, and the name of the website is The Blade of Perseus. Please come join us, either for a free subscription and get our newsletter, or the VDH Ultra subscriptions, where you get three separate articles from Victor each week, and those are $5 a month or $50 a year, so come join us. Well, Victor, I... I used to always ask you, and I'm a little afraid of this question here, but how are things going for you? What, you think I'm Eeyore or something that I'm <laughs> suffering Job? Things are going very well. I'm very angry, of course. My leaders, my readers write um, and listeners sometimes say, how is your Echo Diesel? I bought a 1,500 Ram. I was told 12,000 pounds of towing capacity, torque, 400 horsepower with a six-cylinder diesel, 30 miles. And you know what? For... 20,000 miles, and then suddenly, as I said, turbo blows out. Trump almost gets in a wreck. One month to get into Jim Manning. I'm now mentioning the dealer in Dinuba. I go there for two months. I mean, I just wait a month. I take it in. Two months to get the part. And that's not their fault. It's Ram. I call Ram up. I pay extra money for FedEx. It's fixed, Sammy. And then driving, and guess what? The turbo that was fixed, the hose blew out. I guess it was installed improperly. And how long did it take to get back into the shop? One month. And now, October 17th, three days, four days, it is now December 15th. Two months. Add it all up, five months. Uh, I've had a new, fairly new truck, what I can't use. So... Uh, did somebody say, did you call the dealer? Yes, I talked to the dealer, the owner of the dealer. I talked to the repairer. I talked to the parts. I even called Mopar and Ram. I said to them, you know what? I'll be quite willing to take this beautiful truck that hasn't run in five months and just gave me the 
blue book and I'll let you have the warranty that was very expensive. I'll let you have the bed liner, the, the bed top, everything. Just give me the market value, a fair adjudication of this truck. And then you know what I'll do? I will turn around and buy a new truck from you. How's that? And I will eat that cost. No, no, no. So I don't know what to do. I'm completely frustrated. And I know I'm whining, but I, you know, it's like me being stuck at the Dallas airport for 12 hours. Same thing. But mm. I guess it's more animate you because, you know, there's no excuse. If somebody calls me up and says, hey, Victor, remember me? And I need a blurb on your book. And I sent you a text today. Can you get it back to me in a week? And if I don't get it back in a week, he calls and says, did you read my manuscript 400 pages in a week and blurb it? Because I always read the thing before I blurb it. Just don't blurb it. But if I say that, I don't ever say to him, hey, it's going to be another month. And then, oh, another month. And then another month. And then I, I would never do that to anybody. Especially when the dealer says he'll call me each week to keep me apprised. So I'm yeah. very upset. But that is a minor problem compared to the national scene of the president of Harvard oh, University. Oh, my gosh. So 500 Harvard professors have supported <laughs> her, even though they found a lot of plagiarism in her articles and in her dissertation. And I just want to give a shout out to Christopher Rufo, who has done an extensive investigation on her plagiarism. So he's done some um, great work there. But what are your thoughts on Dr. Gay? Well, you know, I, um, I've been at the Hoover Institution for 20 years, and when I first got there, she was a professor of political science. And how do I remember that? I just remember that she came up for tenure, and it was quite controversial because she had published four, four articles. And I, when you leave tenure, I was in the California State University system, and you go to the Hoover Institution, they have de facto tenure, but you have to be tenured again. And so I was, at this time, compiling this huge dossier for the classics department, you know. And I think I had 16 books, and I was showing that scholarly refereed articles and all these, which, you know, classical studies, American Journal of Philology, classical philology, all of these stuff. At the same time, I was watching this just as a surrogate, you know what I mean, this tenure process. And they tenured her with four articles. I'm not sure they would do that at any UC campus. I'm not sure that all the CSUs would do that, at least in the past. It was, it was so controversial. No book. And they were all on the same topic. You know, the, the victimization of black people and a new take on it. And what, I, what got me angry at the time, and then fast forward, you know, this is 20 years ago. Yeah. So this person had not had any scholarly record and was tenured at Stanford and then went to Harvard and was tenured and has a total output of 11 articles. Okay, you don't get tenure at Harvard with 11 articles. I know people in my own experience who have been fired from tenure with two books as assistant professor. So, okay, so she got an exemption. And then when you look at her larger career, her, her parents were Haitian immigrants. Great, that's the American story. But she went to Phillips Exeter Academy the most exclusive prep school in the United States. Then she went to Princeton. Then she went to Stanford. Then she went to Harvard. And these are schools that take about 8% of their, maybe not even that much these days. So my point is this, that coming to this country, her parents, she got every opportunity in the world. I mean, they bent over backwards at these very prestigious liberal institutions to, to greenlight her career. And then when the George Floyd thing comes, she catapults into these high administrative positions on the basis that this is a systematic racist country. It wasn't with you, Dr. Gay. You weren't a victim of systematic racism. I know you're saying that now. I know Nicole Hannah-Jones is saying that you are a victim, but you surely weren't forced to fire like the Stanford president was, as I mentioned. Stanford president, Mr. Tessa Devine, what, 30 years ago, there was an inappropriate illustration or something wrong with his refereed paper. He withdrew it. He had to resign. 
She didn't have to do that for these plagiarism charges so far. Liz McGill, the former Stanford law dean, president of the University of Pennsylvania, she's gone. She's a white woman. So how in the world can this president who has deplatformed, disinvited guests, gone after Ronald Sullivan, Roland Fryer, with no record of sanctity of the First Amendment, in other words, she was censoring people and punishing people for speech she thought was inappropriate, meaning ideologically opposite to her own, suddenly go up there and claim that she's a, you know, a stalwart protector of the First Amendment. And what I don't understand is this. How do you, how do you have all of that? What's the word? Laxity? Deference. I don't know what the word is. How can you have that for your whole, you're in your early 50s, and the system of higher academia has, has bent over backwards to accommodate you as a black woman, and now you're posing as a victim of racism. And it's just, and, the, the, and then add insult to injury is that you have hundreds of Jewish students under your purview as president, and you have a systematic campaign of people on your campus that are, what, harassing them, calling for their destruction, hoping they all die, and you won't say a word because you claim you're the head of the First Amendment? And now, after this is all blown over, you, I don't know, you go to Jewish uh, religious observances, and all of a sudden you're going to enforce this? But th the only reason you are was the reaction to your dismal performance in front of the nation. Had people thought you did pretty well, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't change. You're only doing this to change. To You're only changing and showing deference to Jewish people in the abstract because you want to save your job. It's just She's an epitome of what happened to higher education. The bottom line is that what took centuries to accrue, that is the reputation of the Ivy League, can be lost in a few years, if it's not an Ivy League, if it's not Stanford, if it's not Duke, it's not Chicago. And that means if you bring students that don't fit your own standards, and you hire faculty on the basis of race or ethnicity or sexual orientation, rather than published, or if the president of Harvard has only written 11 papers in her whole life, and they are under suspicion of being plagiarized, a great deal of them, and she's the leading academic by her, I don't know, by her perch at Harvard, then there's nothing there. There's nothing there. there. There's a half a million academics in the United States that have a better record than she does. And there's probably 90% of them are smart enough not to go to Congress and claim that after you censor speech and deplatform people and disinvite guests on the basis of the First Amendment, i.e. you don't believe in it, and then say that context matters about people advocating genocide. And that's what they're saying when they say river to the sea. And so there's so many things going on here that um, part of it is she feels that the DEI community is absolutely exempt from any criticism that it's racist to the core. Because we saw BLM, remember, with a glider poster almost in a nanosecond glorifying the mass murder by air uh, on October 7th. There was no ramifications for people who were in BLM. We know the whole history of Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, Farrakhan, all of this we've known, people in the squad. We know the history of anti-Semitism in the radical left-wing black community. And so she, yes. she, when, when she goes up there and she has this DEI career, and it's been very privileged. And then not only does she cannot condemn calls for genocide, but she has the audacity to say that it believes on the context because she's a you know a staunch supporter of the First Amendment when nothing in her career has ever evidenced that. And then her supporters, to protect her, claim, play the race card from the bottom of the deck and say that she's a, a victim of being a powerful black voice when we've just fired Liz McGill, who was not nearly as egregious in her own scholarly career, didn't do anything wrong, just said the same thing Claudine Gay did, and she was out. It, it, it's just, 
it's fantastic in the sense of absurd, Orwellian, weird. And I think everybody's sick of it. Yes, but why can they make that assumptions that this DEI community people or the people that it it benefits are, you know, they can get away with anything? And, and I think it's because even though you say, well, it can go like a company, there's just so many companies out there that support this kind of stuff coming out of Harvard. The professors all, I, mean, I guess it's a big virtue signal, or they were afraid if they didn't get their name on the supporter of Dr. Gay list, they would be exactly, blackballed. Exactly. Or who I don't know how many faculty, there's probably two or 3,000 of various statuses at Harvard. But I can guarantee you the 500 are either the most obsequious or the DEI faculty themselves. So they're heavily invested in her survival as a DEI advocate. This whole, th I still think this whole apparatus going to come tumbling down. I really do because it's based on a lie. And the lie is that you can judge people by the color of their skin and then say you're not racist. Yeah. Or you can have safe spaces or you can have microaggressions. I mean, the central lie of the whole thing was summed up at MIT. When MIT, like all these universities, have these stupid spa safe spaces where they create this white bogeyman that's hunting down DEI students and therefore they need a segregated, segregated space of protection. And then when they really are hunting down Jews at Cooper Union or telling people that uh, harassing them at MIT, the president can't say, here's a safe space. I created all these little atolls for your sanctuary from our systematically racist campus, so here's one for you. Now they say, I don't think Jewish people should go in these areas. Mm. And so there it is. It's a whole bankrupt, rotten system, and it's too bad because this country depends on high-quality research in the sciences and business and law and medicine. Maybe not law. Um, we, we've written off the humanities and social sciences, but if these systems of higher learning are not using meritocratic criteria to hire or judge or adjudicate scholarly work, then we're no different than the Soviets in the 30s or 40s with a commissar system or Mao's cultural revolution. Yeah. And I think right now people realize that if you're a Harvard hire, I, I just hired at Harvard University, you're either one of two categories. You either are DEI or you have written your DEI loyalty oath and you're obsequious. Yeah. Just like you were in 1930s in the Soviet Union when you, you said Stalin was a great uh, hydrology, hydrology engineer or something. <laughs> and that's Claudine Gay. She's a great scholar. Yeah. Well, since we're on Harvard, they do have a graduate who is now mayor of Boston. I believe her name is Michelle Wu. Yes. And she recently sent out a memo that she was going to have a party for the, a Christmas party for all of the people of color. Or she called them the elected of color, didn't she? <laughs> what the heck does that mean? I, I, did they have a new, new term? Yes, they do. <laughs> her attitude, I loved what she said when they called her on it. First of all, she sent it out to all the white people like, hey, white person, you can't come to our DEI uh, Christmas party. And then she apologized for sending it out to the white people, not apologizing for being a segregationist, but basically said, I don't want any of you crackers coming in here by accident or I'll kick you out. Somebody should have tried it. That would have been great. It would have been like the lunch counters of the 1950s. Come on in. No. <laughs> or maybe they could take a, um, you know, Tom Sowell once told me about the racist uh, when blacks had to put their arm up and they had a paper bag and there were some racist uh, fraternities. In black colleges. In black could, colleges yeah. and not just black colleges, other places, but at Howard especially. Yeah. You had to be lighter than the paper bag to get in. Well, they should have a white paper bag, like, you know, for a lunch bag. <laughs> and if you're as white as that bag, you cannot come in to Miss Wu's segregated racist. And then she, I, I really liked it. She was, we've been doing this for years. It reminded me, you know, Strom Thurmond and the Dixie Cracks. What's the problem? We've had Jim Crow for 50, 60, 80 years since the Civil War. And then we had 200 years of slavery. Come on. Slavery today, tomorrow, for 
forever. <laughs> segregation. That's what she is. She's basically saying segregation yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And she's also said, you know, what did she say to the firemen? She went there and said, I have all these problems with first responders, this and that, and white people, and they're all white. And she's a racist, and she's married to a white guy. So the whole thing is a theater of the absurd. Yeah. And she knows it, and she knows if anybody else treated anybody the way that that is. And, you know, I was looking at DirecTV. I have a subscription. I was looking at the movies the other day, and it was like, white people can't jump. White girl. <laughs> it was like every single, every five movies, it was white in a disparaging fashion. It reminded me of the step and fetch and racist movies of the 1930s, you know, yeah. where they, they did this to blacks. And at some point, people are going to say, you know, I am so sick of this. I live in a community that's 95% Hispanic. It's not officially so because so many Hispanics identify in census as white. And why not? Because when I know people I went to high school with, or I see, and let's say the Hispanic Mexican-American woman is married to a so-called white guy, and therefore her name is something like Brandy Wilson <laughs> or Star, <laughs> I don't know, Jones. I'm just taking names. But if you see the Mexican, you would not have any idea that she was Mexican. Yeah. You would think she was might be Arabic or Italian or Greek or Armenian. You would have no way of knowing. The thing is so absurd. And so what I'm getting at, this whole DEI thing, is really based on the 116th drop of the old Confederacy. You can't tell half the cases of DEI people. It was a joke where I, where I taught for 21 years at Cal State Fresno. I was on about 10 hiring committees and we would get these directives from these careerist administrators who were always writing these memos, you know, not in my name, this is not who we are, all this stuff. Some guy, probably you know, a little elf and some plant was writing them out and sending them all over the United States, boilerplate. But the point I'm making is we would get there and it was so cynical. We'd look at the, you know, classics professor, uh, you know, a German professor, and everybody would say, hey, do we have an Argentine aristocrat? Is there somebody from Chile who's a sixth-generation Chilean that has an accent on his name or can trill his R? So it was, a, it was just so cynical. And I think that's where we're, we're getting. And uh, yeah. it's what's going to end it is the white liberal, the people in Boston uh, who are liberal and they look at their immediate landscape, and what do they see, Sammy? They, they look over at Harvard, and they say, Claudine Gay is a great God, what a racist. And then they say, Elizabeth Warren, Pocahontas, wow. <laughs> she was the first Harvard Native American lawyer because she had high cheekbones. And then they look at Michelle Wu in the same city, and they say, this is a trifecta. This place is absurd. And I think that's happening now, and people are going to just say, you know, I'm so sick of these people. And they don't. Have, it, it is a refuge of people to gain advantage in careers. I don't see middle class people doing it. It's mostly the elite and the professional classes. Yeah. And I think everybody is getting tired. And it's going to affect the United States, not because non-white people are any less talented, but the anybody anybody who is hired or retained or promoted on the basis of race rather than merit, and merit's not that hard to ascertain or adjudicate. And so in case of Claudine Gay, all, all the Stanford Political Science Department had to do was say, we expect four articles in one book in the next six years. If you don't do it, you're gone. And she didn't do it. Yeah. And she wasn't gone. And that sent the message to everybody, you don't have to do it if you're a particular color. And that's just a fact. And now Harvard has sent the message, if you were a particular color and you plagiarize, we're going to go after the people who accuse you. So what's going to happen at Harvard for the next 20 years, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of plagiarists that come out of the woodwork. Of course. <laughs> They're going to say, hmm, Harvard says this in their code, but I can kind of take this and, and tweak it a little bit, add an adverb <laughs> or a noun, 
and then just copy it word for word. And if they let the president of Harvard get away with it, they'll have to let the assistant professor of economics get away with it. Yeah, and all the students, too. How would they ever expel a student? They expelled about 50 or 60, I think, a year for that. Yeah, They can't do it anymore. They can't do it. I don't think Stanford's political science department can really fire anybody that doesn't have a book. All they have to say is they have to invoke the Claudine Gay rule. And maybe it'll say, well, asterisks, you can invoke it, but you're not black, so you can't really qualify. If they do that, then at least they're transparent and honest about their racism. Yeah, exactly. Well, Victor, let's you go know, ahead. I want to just okay. add one thing. The thing about this is, is so ironic. If you look at a, some of the most, the brightest guys in the United States, a lot of them are black. You take Shelby Steele, like a, I've known him for 20 years. He's absolutely brilliant. He's a beautiful prose stylist. He taught at San Jose State. He didn't get any preference. In fact, when he wrote the content of character, they went out to try to fire him at San San Jose State. And then he went to the Hoover, and he was one of our stars. You look at Tom Sowell. Tom Sowell didn't, he came in an area where he didn't get any breaks. Yeah. UCLA, Chicago, none. And... The way he reasons and his analysis, he's so light years ahead of people. You look at Roland Fire, maybe he got a little push in the beginning, but once he, his data and his research showed things that were not palatable to the left, they went after him. Yeah. And that only made him better. And that's just, some of the brightest people are black intellectuals, mostly on the conservative side because they get nothing. In fact, white liberals hate them. Yeah. And they have to endure uh, and be hyper exact and punctual. And every little, cross every T, dot every I, and they're really smart people. And that, that's what's so sad about the whole thing. If we just did that for everybody, we would have in a black, meritocratic elite in within five years. Yeah. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and take a break and come back, and we're going to talk about the Odyssey. And don't worry, folks, we also have Hunter Biden on the agenda today, so we'll get to him. But we want to look at the Odyssey. It's a real struggle between civilization and savagery in so many places, and I think that's going to be a big theme here in what's coming up. So stay with us, and we'll be right back. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com. And use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back. This is the Victor Davis Hansen Show. Victor is um, found on social media on X at VD Hansen and then also on Facebook at Hansen's Morning Cup. So please come join us. There's also the Victor Davis Hansen Fan Club, which is unassociated with us, but it's a group of people that 
Um, as I always say, they dig up the old and they also have the new there. So it's a good follow to have if you are on Facebook. So, Victor, we're going to look at the Odyssey today, and I thought we'd have a different approach by looking at some specific books and specific passages. And one of my favorite is in Book 5 when Odysseus is just starting to get away from Calypso and is going back to, or trying to get back home. He's on his way. He's almost there. And Calypso tells him to build a raft, and he does. And she says, now take this raft, and and you can get across. And he's crossing, and, and a huge storm comes up, of course, because Poseidon doesn't like him. And um, uh, Eno comes out and says, get off your raft at this point. And he says this, an interesting thing in one of the translations I was looking at, Eno goes, you're a sensible person. Now, this is what you need to do. And then Odysseus's own mind is thinking. And here it is from the Classic Club um, prose translation of the Odyssey by Samuel um, Butler. And he thinks, this is only someone or, or other of the gods who is luring me to ruin by advising me to quit my raft. At any rate, I will not do so at present, for the land where she said I should be quit of all my troubles seems to be still a good way off. I know what I will do. I am sure it will be best. No matter what happens, I will stick to the raft as long as her timbers hold together, but when the sea breaks her up, I will swim for it. I do not see how I can do any better than this. And I always like that because... Odysseus separates himself from the gods. And I was wondering if you had commented well, on that. Homer, Homer remembers the name we associate with a supposedly blind bard who composed orally through formula and uh, type scenes, the Iliad and the Odyssey, these monumental 12,000-line poems composed in Ionic Greek and Dactylic Examiner around 700 B.C. And we only have two of them. There must have been 15 or 16 by some by Homer that we don't have, but many other bards. But these were the monumental poems that apparently in antiquity were considered the most moving, the best, and they coincided with the age of the city-state and the advent of writing. So they were uh, formalized or became iconicized uh, by writing. And then the tradition of oral poetry more or less ended. So. It's very different, the Odyssey, than the Iliad. The Iliad takes place in the 10th year, and uh, it's a few weeks' time on the battlefield. It's about the character development of Achilles and the whole heroic code uh, put into question. Agamemnon and Menelaus don't really deserve their power given their performance on the battlefield. People like Ajax and Achilles don't get the credit that they should, should have won under such a system and etc cetera, etc cetera. however the odyssey is very different it's a mediterranean wide novel and it's very sophisticated it take the form of it it doesn't it's not a straight narrative it's a complete flashback the first first real monumental novel if you could say that for this epic poem is a flashback He's at the island of the Phaeacians after Calypso has let him go. And then he, he recites all of what he's done since he left Troy for 10 years. And it, it's amazing the characterization that he uses. And then the second thing about it is, this is the creation of archetypes in the West that will dominate literature for the next 2,500 years. What do I mean by archetype? Penelope is the loyal wife who puts up with everything. She's, and before you say, well, she's just a wifey in the 1950s. No, she's brilliant. She knows how to outsmart these so-called suitors, 102 or something, leeches that come into the house when he's gone. Her husband's gone for 20 years, and she tries to postpone uh, the forced wedding so they can get a hold of the estate, marry her, get rid of her son, Telemachus. And so she weaves and on weaves at night. And she says when this tapestry is done, then she'll marry. And she outsmarts them. And she's loyal. She doesn't sleep around, da-da-da-da. A lot of feminist scholars don't like that. But 
she's the rock of the household. So when the husband is off at war, maybe he's in Vietnam or World War II, it's the woman who keeps things running. It reminds me of the, the best years of our lives, the, the Myrna Lloyd character that just keeps everything going while her husband's gone. And then there's Odysseus. He's the modern man. He's, he's a good fighter, but unlike Achilles or Ajax, he's crafty. So he figures out things. When, he, when he's up against this pre-modern Cyclops, he not only knows how to sharpen, the, get him drunk, take out his eye, get under the fleece of the sheep to get out, but make him say that nobody did it. So when he yells out, nobody did this to me, the other Cyclops don't come to his aid. And he does that all the time. So he's the, the multi-dimensional person to survive in a Mediterranean tapestry. That's what the thing. And then we have Telemachus, the, the son that's coming of age. He's really got a lot of potential, but he's rash and he has to be schooled. We have Laertes, the grandfather, the patriarch of the family. He's old, he's not quite as active, but he's there with wise counsel. You've got kind of the patronizing client-master um, relationship with Eumaeus, the loyal swineherd. He's a slave, but he works side by... He's kind of like the hired guy that works... That You know, the master has a business, and he has a guy that, you know, does all the maintenance, and the, ma and the guy, they become better friends than his own family because he's a wonderful person, Eumaeus, totally uh, loyal to the distant... And on and on and on. We have women that are, I mean, it's kind of sexist perhaps, but people like, there are women in the ancient world that are modern women. They don't choose to marry. They don't choose to have kids. They're very attractive, and, um, and they happen to be semi-divine, Circe and Calypso. And um, they entice him. And then who is Odysseus? He's not only the crafty person, he wants to get home. So he's he puts his family first and his homeland so for all of these seductive attractions of Calypso and Circe and all of the need to out, you know, to sail between Charybdis and Scylla or escape the Lystragonian monsters or the Lotus seductive uh, drug peddlers or the sirens, he, he can, he's the only person that has the skills to outsmart them all and, but outsmart them to get home. And so, and, that's mostly the it, the novel, and it's so finely characterized with these archetypes and the flashbacks. And then you go back from the past time to the present, and then the story goes in chronological order. It's sort of like Pulp Fiction. And that's very sophisticated for an oral bard to, to pull off. And the main theme, as you said, is civilization versus savagery. So what do these challenges have? They're either postmodern or pre-modern. They're very crafty, beautiful women who are, he has to outsmart. Or there are people like the sirens that are seductive, or the lotus eaters. In other words, they're, they're more than modern. Or they're pre-modern, and they're just savage monsters. And that would be the Lystragonians or the Cyclops or Charybdis or Scylla. And he can do either one. He can outsmart either one of them, pre- and, and post-modern. So it's a it's really a novel, and it doesn't have the level of it doesn't have the power of description or character development of the Iliad, uh, because it's but it's not confined on the battlefield, and it spans twenty years, and it's so much more sophisticated than the novel arts of, of chronology and characterization and archetypes, and so it's uh, these two are sort of bookend poems at the beginning of Western Sib. Everybody says, oh, well, Western Sib, why not Chinese or India? Well, they all have great works, but not at the very beginning. Two monumental poems so different and of such caliber that really set the standard for all subsequent literature. Did you, um, um, do, do you ever think, well, why did Homer choose Odysseus for this? Why not Nestor or... Um, I know he's he's kind of old, but no, there were a lot of there was a whole series of epic poems, and a lot of them dealt with what they called the nostoi, the returns. So remember, there were these Mycenaean events that took place in real history, an attack on probably a Hittite-speaking or Phoenician city where Troy is, or the sack of Thebes, right? Mm, yeah, and in 
the Trojan cycle, there were the story of the actual fighting in Troy, of which with the Iliad, there was the Trojan horse story, there was the sack of Troy, the Iliad of Persis, there was the Palladium theft, there was all of those. But one component was the Nostoi. What happened to all these people? And we know that there were poems about Agamemnon coming back and being slaughtered by Clytemnestra, which Aeschylus took up in, the, in his trilogy, the Oresteia. We know that Menelaus came back with Helen and she flipped Paris. We know that Ajax killed himself because he didn't get the armor of Odysseus. We know that Odysseus came back, but it took him 20 years. Mm. And we know Achilles didn't get back. He was killed on the battlefield. My point is that there were poems about each one of these, and they all reflected the fact that somewhere around 1200 or 1250 or 1170 or something, a group of Greek speakers went to Asia, and they were successful, perhaps, in destroying Troy, or whatever it was historically, but it coincided with the last generation of Mycenaean citadels, because on the way back, or maybe almost contemporaneous with that victory, they were wiped out. Yeah. And that's reflected over 500 years of exaggeration and myth-making of a, of a decimated population in the Dark Ages. They didn't have the technology, it lost the ability to write or to record, but they did see these monumental Tholoi tombs or yeah. the Lion's Gate, and so they were creating myths about what they saw, and they had the oral tradition that kept alive. And probably some of these names, like I think Achilles and others, uh, are, in, are in Mycenaean tablets. Mm. And so they are exaggerated, and suddenly the last generation was mythologically transformed into these heroes that came back and they met disaster on the return. Yeah. I'm not suggesting the suitors were, you know, uh, sea peoples from the north, but there was bad things that happened historically when they came after Troy. So then it's it's after the fact then Odysseus, we already have the story and then Homer's developing his character and yes. he makes him into a guy that not only is a great fighter, but he can rethink what the gods have said to him. Yes. And because so, Homer is composing, he's not composing in 800 BC, he's not composing in 900, he's not composing in 1000. He's at the last generation of this epic development of, of the Nostoi, and one of them is Odysseus. And he is a product of a sophisticated city state. 700, the beginning of it. So he has the ability, or after 500 years of refinement, drawing on the work of others, to take just a fairy story and make it a sophisticated novel. In other words, he can bring in the idea that Odysseus has a definite personality, and he has this overriding ability to outsmart people, and he understands that the gods are just larger than life. They're not saints. They're not moral creatures. They fornicate. They lie. They trick. And that is that represents the new skepticism of a more affluent and larger population of 1,500 city-states that he's bringing. I, uh, in 1993, I wrote kind of a 250,000-word book called The Other Greeks about the city-state, the rise of it. And I had a chapter, I think it was number two, called Laertes' Farm. And what I said is, when you look at the description of Laertes' farm, the father of Odysseus, when he comes back in disguise, he goes up to his dad's farm. He doesn't, and his dad will find out who he is. But every element, irrigation, homestead farming, grapes, grain, um, olive trees, it, it's a a representation of a sophisticated type of agriculture that was not present in the Mycenaean period. In other words, when Homer's got the old thing, he's, when he's got the old outline, he has the outline, but he's adding things. And when he wants to talk about a farm, he looks at farms in his own lifetime and puts them back into a context 500 years earlier. Yeah. Well, if we could stick with Odysseus's character, I think that he uses a 
bow and arrow, if I'm not wrong, and when, when he's first killing all the suitors to his wife, Penelope. And isn't the, isn't it more manly, more warrior-like to fight with the sword yes, rather do. than, and, and so why clever Odysseus and arrow shooter, the lesser form of warrior? Well, remember, when he kills the suitors, he starts out with arrows, but then he, he adjusts when they're gone to spears and swords, so he's multifaceted. But he he's a master of the bow, which no no other person probably except Telemachus can can string the bow. That's the test of the suitors. He's the only one, and he looks at Telemachus not to do it. But the point is that he is using uh, every type of uh, weapon possible, including and without stain to his character uh, a I guess you call it a cheater's weapon. You don't kill somebody. And who's the master uh, in the Iliad? It's the fop Paris, who shoots Achilles with an arrow in the heel. And it's always considered cheating. In fact, we have from the Lelantine Plain um, War of 700, we have uh, prohibitions for using missile weapons. And in hoplite warfare of the early city-state, it was considered cheating, or it was less heroic to use a bow and arrow. And so, but not. But that's the point about Odysseus. He's he doesn't really care about tradition. He doesn't really care about protocol. He doesn't care about his reputation necessarily. He's just so multifaceted and multidimensional that he can do anything, and he's willing to do anything. He, yeah. he has to sleep with Calypso. He will. He'll he'll sleep with Circe to save his crew if he has to. Uh, kind of seduce without sex Nausicaa, the, the daughter of the king of Phaeacia, he'll do it. And he's he's the modern man of the polis yeah. put into an, uh, a classical context. And it's kind of sad that the first piece of literature we have, not sad but ironic, is a refutation of the, of the, the whole epic tradition's values that we see in the Iliad. And so the Odyssey was probably composed, I don't know, 30 to 50 years later. Yeah. It's got a lot of different language. It has a different type of language. It has more, it has less hopox legomena. Those are words that never appear yeah. anywhere else in Greek. In any case, it is, uh, when he goes to the underworld and he sees Achilles, he says, wow, you're the master of the underworld. That's the greatest thing to be. You know what I mean? You die young. Your, your body never ages, you have your legacy, and you just think Achilles is going to say, yeah, I'm famous, I'm walking around. And he said, I'd rather be the pe lowliest peasant and be alive in Greece than the lord of the underworld. So it's a rejection of the heroic code. Yeah. And he does not, it's not like Odysseus is going to say, hey, Polyphemus, you cyclops, let's go out and have it on, like Achilles, one-on-one -on, -one on the battlefield. Or he doesn't say that Lystragonians, our men, are going to line up and fight you. And he doesn't say any of that. And he even tempts himself. He doesn't even put wax in his ears. He tie, he's tied to the, the mast post on uh, his ship so he can hear the sirens. He wants to be tempted yeah. and see what they're like. And he says, don't listen to me, you know. And, but uh, He's far more human as a hero than human, the other. Yeah. And he outsmarts the gods. And he knows how to deal with them. He's a trickster, yeah. and they uh, they recognize that. But yeah. there's no there's no um, reverence for an all powerful, all moral God as you see in the Iliad somewhat. Although even in the Iliad, there it's a lot of people who uh, have written about Greek religion see that element as reaffirming that. There's a society that makes gods that are no better than men. Mm. And therefore, they're very confident people. Their gods are just don't die. They're stronger. They're better looking. They never age. But they don't necessarily, they're not morally superior. They have certain rules and protocols. And that you can see that by the 5th century when the tragedians are doing what Homer does, reworking these old myths, but on the Athenian stage when in Euripides, Bacchae, uh, after Dionysus is slaughtered and, and just behead, Pentheus beheaded by his mother, I think it's Tiresias, 
uh, and Cadmus are talking, and they say to Dionysus, you know, God should be better than men, i.e., you're not better than we are, but you should be if you're a god. Yeah. Well, you were talking about Book 22 when Odysseus um, takes back the house from the suitors, and I, I thought it was interesting at the end where the nurse um, Eurycleia comes up and she wants to celebrate that all of the suitors are dead, and, and Odysseus says to her, and again, and this is in the translation by Samuel Butler for the Classics Club, he says, Quote, it is an unholy thing to vaunt over dead men. And I thought, wow, that's a whole different um, way of looking at things than our local Hamas do today. Yeah, and it also it picks up the final part of the Iliad when Achilles lets Priam have the, his dead Hector. And he, no, he no longer desecrates the, the corpse and ties him around the chariot. And it's supposed to signify that... Achilles' character is developed to show compassion for somebody in the same situation as he will be in, his father will be in, and maybe the end of the heroic code itself. But um, also remember it works in the, the dramatic progression of the novel because the suitors all have family, right? And they're going to come and try to fight it out to revenge the death of their, of their sons. And if you don't lord it over and there's trying to be it, that's another aspect of Odysseus's character. He's going to try to find a peace between the families of the suitors whose children he's killed and then not keep this vengeance cycle, the dark age, you know, yeah. way of doing sort of like a Scandinavian saga. Uh, you kill me, I kill you, the Hatfields and McCoys, on and on and on. He's got the skills to bring it to a close. You think so? Because earlier in that um, book 22, he says, these people, these are my words, but he basically says, these people are going to pay for what they did. Well, and no, I'm, I'm not, not going to go light on them at all. No, no. I mean, even Eurycleia has to point out all the servant girls that um, slept with the suitors. They're all going to be hanged. Yeah. Hanged. And they're like, I guess they're like birds that squeal that. They kill them all. No, I, no, no. There's not any idea of mitigation. They're going to pay everybody back. But once you pay everybody back, the people you paid back, you don't want them to pay you back, and then you pay back, and you pay back. So there's a finality of justice. They did this. They pay. Sort of like Israel's doing Hamas. You came into our country and you slaughtered everybody. Twelve hundred. So we're going to destroy the people who did that. And then what? Yeah. You, they want some type of government to come in that's not Hamas to stop the cycle. You know what I mean? Yeah. By destroying Hamas and then not, and then finding a way to end it. Because if they let Hamas go, it's going to be back and forth forever. You think so? It won't be back and forth. Just trying to end it all with. I mean, if they end everything about Hamas, I think they'll be successful. But if they don't, just that's what I mean. It destroy has to be one, the whole. It, ha it has to be one-time destruction. Yeah. If you let them go, it'll be back and forth, back. And that's what the that's the solution in the Odyssey. You destroy the suitors and everything they represented, and then when they come back, their parents to get revenge on you for get for having got revenge on them. Then you stop it. Yeah. And the gods come in and everything. That's, that's the end of it. All right. Victor, we're coming uh, close to the end. We do have Hunter Biden left, but stay with us. We'll come back after these messages. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back. It's the Victor Davis Hanson Show, and we still have Hunter Biden out. Recently, he has been, um, uh, he went to, he was supposed to be at a deposition, but instead he went to a press conference across the street and did not go to the deposition. And he said a lot of really um, strange things at this press conference that um, people are impugning his character, which I think he's already (laughs) done himself. So it's not like, and Trump cult is obsessed with me. And um, uh, what else? I thought that was so funny. I think he was trolling everybody. I mean, here's a guy who took funnel pictures of his phallus and had all these hookers and then recorded all of them and had the audacity to write it off as a business expense to cheat on his taxes. He was using drugs. He was dealing with Ukrainian and Russian hookers. He was... He went through $5 million. He drove some sports car, Porsche or something, at over 100 miles an hour. He did every imaginable uh, sin there is in uh, biblical terms. And then he turns around and says, you're defaming me. I think it was on Greg Gutfeld where Tyrus says that he was mad about it. <laughs> made fun of his art. <laughs> I did the art myself. <laughs> I assure you I did that. <laughs> I may be a rogue, a cocaine addict, a drug addict, a procurer of women. I may cheat, cheat on my taxes, but don't ever accuse my dad of doing my art. <laughs> <laughs> so he, I think he's, he says he's going to go out of the country if Trump's elected. It's not going to work. He's playing the victim. He's not a victim. He's a spoiled brat. I mean... How a person could seduce, when he was married, the grieving widow of his own brother or have a dialogue with his own sister about, when you procure me women, no Asian women, right? Yeah. I mean, every, every imaginable horror is in that. And, you know, there's this... Uh, pseudonym Marco Polo, who did... He just took the report of the Biden laptop, and he didn't embellish it. He just put every single picture and every single text, and he footnoted it in a scholarly fashion. And if you look at that thing, it's uh, it's it's a house of horrors. And he did it, and he knows it. And the whole thing is absurd because he doesn't exist without Joe Biden. Even Devin Archer said he was the brand, Joe Biden. So when Joe Biden, he says, how don't, my father had no financial interest. He had an interest, but we won't call it financial. <laughs> and then the New York Times, of course, when they quoted it, they took that out as if they were in 1984. He had no interest. That's how they reported his quote. They took out the word financial. <laughs> he was not financially. That's perfect. Interested. I know. I mean, they're, they're, they've lost they're like shredded. Dr. Gay, only the opposite. They're taking they're, words out that they find unpalatable. They're the same type of <laughs> they're the same type of pseudo leftist moralists that feel that they're so morally superior that any means necessary to achieve their exalted ends or aims are justified. But he did it to himself and he knows that these people are really think we're stupid. I mean, when China sent, cuts them a $5 million check and they start redistributing it and they write these multi-thousand dollar checks to Joe Biden and they write loan repayment at the bottom. I mean, that's like one of our listeners who, you know, goes to Vegas, stays at a hotel, goes to a convention, and then at the bottom he puts... Uh, car repair or truck repair <laughs> on it. Come on. And... You have to juxtapose this with this sanctimonious hypocrite Joe Biden in 2019 and 20 touring the country saying, they're going to have to pay their fair share. The rich are going to have to pay under me. Yeah, your whole family never paid their income tax. And they're rich. And there's no way you can collate his lifestyle, his houses, etc., with the income he made as a senator or vice president. No, they're such liars. This and Hunter whole, had no. Yeah. What was his? What does he think we think? Does, I mean, they make, they got twenty six million collective dollars. Is he saying that he was a brilliant lawyer and he had an international law firm? And they said, "Wow, 
I met this guy named Hunter Biden that just happened to be uh, related to some guy named Joe Biden. I don't care about that. He was a brilliant legal mind, and I hired him at Burisma for 80000 a month because he picked up fuel knowledge. He knows about oil. He's, he, he's just a, a genius. So we're going to pay him 80, and then he does the same thing with Romanians and Chinese. Everybody's wowed. He's sort of half Wall Street wizard and half Alan Dershowitz, you know. That's how he's, that's what we're supposed to believe. And he has no other relations with Joe Biden, even though we have him on tape saying the man next to me, I, you better be careful. I'm sitting next to a man, i.e. the whole center of the Biden syndicate. Even <laughs> James Biden's wife was in on it, you know. She was the so-called lawyer that was cutting checks. They were all on it. The niece was in it. The daughter was in it. It was yeah. a whole clan of these grasping, wannabe, middle-class people that were faking out like they were all from Scranton and working-class people. They were always middle-class, and they wanted to be wealthy. And when Joe Biden, for his whole career, was suspicious... And then finally, they hit pay dirt when he was vice president, and he was not yet demented, and they thought he would be president someday, and he had a window of opportunity, and Hunter went to work. Yeah. And he made him $26 million, and they did not pay full income tax on it. And that's what the whistleblowers found. Yeah. So when, you know, they have all these Democratic House members, not a shred of evidence, you think, well, you have Devin Archer, you have Tony Bobolinsky, you have all the exchanges on the laptop. You have the IRS whistleblowers. Now you have canceled checks. What more do you want? It's all there. Yeah. And they know it. And so I think what's happening is you're starting to see under the Freedom of Information Act and these congressional subpoenas, you're starting for the first time to see, weird, isn't it? Canceled checks pop up. We didn't think they'd ever release them. Why are they releasing them now? Is it couldn't be that Joe Biden is considered expendable? And Hunter knows very well that if, if Joe Biden does not run re-election, he's got about 11 or 12, he's got now about 13 months until his dad is out of office. Yeah. And he knows he will be pardoned. He will be pardoned. Yeah, what sure. does Joe Biden care? He's just going to say, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm not president anymore. And Hunter knows that. In the meantime, his handlers are telling him to say things like, if Trump is elected, Hunter has to flee the United States. I'm like, no, you can do it anyway. We don't need you here. So funny. <laughs> they have all these never-Trumpers, you know, gosh. They're all on TV, Bill Crystal, David Frum, and they're all warning us that, you know, if Trump is elected with the end of democracy, he's going to go after Michael Cohen, the convicted liar and cheat, is on now. They're quoting him chapter and verse on what Trump might do. And there's two things that make that absurd. He was there for four years. Yeah. And the problem with him is he was naive, Trump. He let Comey run wild. He let Fauci run wild. He let McCabe run wild. He let Clapper and Brennan do There was no control. He wasn't vindictive. Robert Mueller ate up 22 months of his presidency, and no sooner did Robert Mueller say, ah, forget all about that, found nothing, than they cooked up this phone call of impeachment. And, and you know, Michael Venman, no, Representative Nunes, it's Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Venman. Remember that guy? Yes. He said, oh, I don't know who the uh, uh, wink nod uh, whistleblower is, but was the whistleblower on the call? No. Uh, so you talk to someone. Well, I can't talk about that. That would give away the whistleblower. That was the days when whistleblowers were sacrosanct, not like the IRS whistleblowers, they, the malign and smear every day today. Yeah. Isn't that funny how just, I don't know, three years ago whistleblowers were kingly, saintly people and now they're scum. And the mere idea of impeaching a president when he loses his majority in his first term was necessary and now it's oh my god how dare you it's unconstitutional in the old days if you subpoena Ivanka and Jared for the January 6th committee or Steve Bannon or Letita James subpoenas the children of the president that's what that's that's necessary no one's above the law now you do it with Hunter 
he shouldn't have to do it. This is just punitive. This is just revenge. This is just out of control. The left is just so <laughs> shameless, man. They just take, it's like, just forget everything I did for four years and now redefine what I'm doing as saintly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. It is. It's, these well, people are, I don't remember anything like these people. No. I really don't. I know there's a leftist mindset, but this is... This is something new, these people. You know what it reminds me of? I feel like I remember when the 9-11, those two towers went down, and you kept just watching it, and you're like, play that again and again and again. I, I feel the same about those presidents saying, well, genocide depends on context. Like, play that again. Like, I never got tired of, could you what play is, that one more time? Or Hunter's Ste various things. Stefanet, didn't she say, I ask you 11 times? Yeah, something like that. that. What was weird is they didn't even, they didn't respond to the context. They were talking about context, but the context was they were under oath. And they just kept mouthing it. They said, did you or did you not have a role about calling for the destruction of an entire people, genocide? It depends on the context. And then they ask it again. It depends on the context. They didn't, they were like Comey or McCabe or these people that just, or... Ray, Christopher Ray, they just repeat this, or Andrew Mayorkas, ah, oh, the border is secure. Well, how about the, the border is secure. The border is secure. It depends on content. Yeah. It's. Context it's, and actionable things. You're like, everybody's sitting there thinking, you mean you want them to start committing to a genocide before you can actually you know punish them? Gonna happen. What does that I mean? Think all these wealthy, <laughs> all these wealthy people that want to be on the board of trustees of Yale and Harvard and Stanford and Penn and MIT, they want their grandkids in, they want this, 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 they want to tell them. They're looking at this and they're thinking, well, short term, I got my grandson in. Long term, we were all Dr. Frankensteins and we created a Frankensteinian monster. And these presidents are monsters and they've taken over the entire lab and they're going to destroy everything, including us who created them. And they don't know what to do. But yeah. They have, it must be like the Disney, you know, corporate board. Yeah. <laughs> we got our, we got this guy Iger and these people, and they got their trans movie, and, you know, movies, and they made all of the dwarfs different colors and sexual orientation, yeah. and they did all of this, and we have all this and this, and nobody wants to watch our movies. We destroyed our brand. We did it in about two years. Yeah. Our target. Well, wow, see, that was really good. We yeah. have we have a little cod piece on children's <laughs> female pieces uh, panties. That's really neat. We're cutting edge. Our competitors, oh my God, we yeah. did this to our brand in just a year. And, I, and they won't stop. I I know that because I don't think they think their brand is gone. They think they're going to weather the storm. I don't know. They, they're trying to. They're getting a lot of conservatives, you know, Dana White. Is it Dana White or all these people that are suddenly drinking Bud Light? You know, mm -hmm. conservative people. But yeah. I, I think everybody should just lay off Bud Light for a little longer. Yeah, there's a lot better beers out there. Yeah, and just Even don't, if you don't like go water. to Disney. You know, just... just Say, you know, I'm not going to Disneyland or Disney World for a while. If you're going to go to Target, go to Walmart or somewhere else, just don't go. Yeah. Just for a little while longer to let them stew. <laughs> All they, right. They're awful people. They really are. They deserve everything they get. This and, is the end of our show, Victor Davis Hanson. Well, thank everybody for listening. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, everybody. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hanson. We're signing off. <laughs>